Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast, the podcast where we talk about all things art-related. This is episode 111, Sarah Matthews Printmaker Bookbinder, recorded on October 2nd, 2020. My name is Julie Bayfan Balzer, and with me is my co-host, Eileen Schubalzer. Hi, Mom. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm good. Your brother and his uh, baby and his girlfriend are, they're on their way to moving to California tomorrow, so they're in the house. I haven't seen them in probably at least a month. Is that your way of saying that you really don't want to be doing this podcast with me right now? <laughs> I, well, I want some credit for doing this in the middle of it. So I'm enjoying it. That's you should all. be. You should be. Um, well, we'll make this fast then, Mom. We'll head through everything really fast. So let's start with the things of interest that I just want to point out, which is upcoming classes. I do have some upcoming Scanning Cut live online classes that have some space, which you should check out. My Scanning Cut Work at Your Own Pace stencil class is coming up. Uh, or is it coming up? Is up and is awesome, and people are uh, raving about it. I finished making something really cool for the gelatin printing class that I'm teaching in 20. 2021. It's going to blow your mind. Uh, I can't say anymore. It's it's just so exciting. Well, that's not very exciting at all. So I will say a little bit more. It is a system for registration for gelatin print registration to beat all other systems. I have finally figured it out beyond the, the normal way that people register their gelatin prints. I think this is this is incredible precision and I can't wait to teach all about it. I was so excited about it that I had to carry it down to the kitchen to show Steve this morning because I was like, look what I made. It took me two weeks, but I figured it out. Hope he was suitably laudatory. I mean, he was clear. He was excited because I was excited, but he was clearly not that interested. Uh, and then <laughs> finally, I'll just say, yeah, membership is going strong. I put up a brand new real-time video in the membership classroom. The live stream is coming up this month. The vlog is coming. There's lots of stuff going on for $5.99. It's a great way to, um, you know, hang out with some other people, get some great content, and also support me at Balzer Design. So I always appreciate that too. So. Also, no, no, not so. I think what? you should also mention that the Carve December thing is coming and mm. that's free and anybody of any level should participate. Yes. But in addition this year, you're doing this new thing of having a class, which is a pay class, and you have, what, 10 extra teachers, each of whom is going to be teaching some aspect of carving yeah and it's also really interesting because each of the teachers and you may have noticed that we've been interviewing some of them for the podcast but each exactly. of the teachers comes from a different perspective on carving uh everybody has different methods different ideas about it and you kind of get used to the idea which i know i've talked about forever on the podcast about a lot of things which is there isn't a right and a wrong there's a way that works for you and the trick sometimes to learning is finding the teacher who works the way that you like uh, or works with the materials that are comfortable for you. So one of the nice things is we have teachers from all over the world. So there uh, are teachers from Australia and Europe and the U.S. And, and what that helps to do is it helps to sort of um, – equalize different kinds of supplies which is often a confusing thing for people because you know we can't get this in Europe we can't get this in Australia we can't get this you know um, and also I just want to say that I'm so impressed with um, 
some of the women who English is not their first language and they teach this entire class in English and it requires like technical terms and people are amazing. I am stupid and I don't speak any languages other than English and I'm barely functioning there. So it is always amazing and impressive to me when people can do that. So I give a big round of applause to all of them. Um, but let us, I'm trying to rush through this mom so you can spend time with the baby and with precious Matthew. Baby's taking a nap now. Oh, well then let's luxuriate and let's talk about recommendations. What have you got? Okay. If you're listening to this podcast, then I'm going to take a wild guess and say that you might be interested in other podcasts. And there is a series that is put on by the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture. And... They want to foster curiosity and a spirit of discovery by enhancing public understanding of and appreciation for the natural world, science, and human cultures. So it's six museums, um, the collection of the historical of historical scientific instruments, which then gets you into the history of science. It's the Harvard Museum of Natural History, the Harvard University Herbaria. Uh, Mineralogical and Geological Museum, the Museum of um, uh, Zoology, Comparative Zoology, the Harvard Museum of Ancient of the Ancient Near East, and the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology. And the talks are varied. Uh, there's one on how they put together museum uh, exhibits. There's one on uh, personalizing the lives of ancient Egyptians. There's uh, uh, 19th century women at Harvard. All sorts of interesting topics. You just fit, pick the one you want. Food and status. Uncovering earthquakes, you know. Uh, I think it's for people who want to learn a little something and want to hear some experts and some students and everybody talking about these topics. So, H-M-S-C connects. H-M-S-C and a second connects, or the yeah. C is part of the connects. word connects. It looks like it's separate uh, with an exclamation point. And it's um, both on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts, just like this podcast that you're listening to now. And I just... I find it really fun to hear from someone who's deeply into a particular topic about their expertise and obsession. So I think there's probably something for everyone. HMSC Connects Podcast. Okay. So as always, I think I should start giving my recommendation first because mine is always less intellectually stimulating and more stupid. So maybe we should make that This is not competitive, Julie. <laughs> okay, so uh, my right, so okay, backstory. So first, I have become obsessed lately with the idea of making your own watercolors. I can't explain why I have become obsessed with this, but it is a serious obsession and it's it has consumed me and I have looked up a bajillion tutorials from like the kids watercolors that you make with totally non-harmful things to like artist watercolors that you make with actual chemicals to natural pigments to purchase pigments to like food coloring to yeah I mean just I, I've been through the ringer but the one thing that all of these watercolors um, have in common is that you need to find a place to put 
the watercolors that you make, right? Um, and I, a while ago, I did a tutorial where I showed how to take, um, to make a palette for on-the-go watercolors where you basically take gum wrappers, empty gum wrappers. Chewing from gum those, Yeah, chewing gum wrappers with those little, like, square plastic things, and you use those as the watercolor pans, and you put them in a, um Altoid tin, and I was just doing that with regular tube watercolors as opposed to make your own, but while I was searching Etsy for handmade watercolors, which that's a whole other rabbit hole that you can go down, I found that someone is making something totally genius and brilliant that I absolutely love, which is it is a little palette that fits inside an Altoid tin. It's molded plastic, and there's space for a tiny brush inside it. And I just thought it was so genius that someone had actually figured out like a formalized way to perfectly fit a palette inside an Altoid 10. So it is 100% amazing and I love it and I am going to link to it and it is in my Etsy cart <laughs> right now. Anyways, our guest today is Sarah Matthews. Now, Sarah is a printmaker and a book artist, and her work has been exhibited in the U.S. and as part of the permanent collection of Yale's, and I'm going to butcher this, Beneki, 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 thank you, Mom, uh, Rare Book and Manuscript Library, George Washington University's Gelman Library, the University of Puget Sound, and Samford University. She is also a YouTuber and a designer for Art Foamies. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Well, so let's. Excited to be here. I'm glad that you're here. I want. I want to talk about all of these places where your work is in permanent exhibit. Uh, talk to us about that. How did that come about? Well, a lot of those books. Um, that's what the, most of them are. Actually, I probably say 99% of the things that are in those places are um, artist books, and a lot of them are collaborative work. So. Those are things that I did um, while getting my master's of art from um, George Washington University. And so we did a lot of collaborative like book projects and um, some of them were end up being like 30 to 35 like um, books. So they were all individually sold in different places. That's why it's like, seems like it's a lot, but <laughs> we, we made a lot of books um, um, to sell to different places and different vendors. but. But yeah, that's how that happened. Well, for people who aren't familiar with what an artist book is as opposed to a book, will you just tell us a little bit about artist books? So the easiest way, and the funny thing is we did a thesis like project or how we defend like what an artist book is. So oh, I'm going to wow. try and like, yeah, simplify it <laughs> down. But um, think about if you if you did a painting or if you did a sculpture, like a paper sculpture, if you put it into a book and it doesn't have to have words and you're an artist, it's an artist book. <laughs> I mean, that's the simplest way that I can explain it to you because like um, the one thing that I defended in my in my thesis project was that if I say it's an artist book, it's an artist book. So... If it's a you know one pager and I fold it up just like the one you did recently I just saw on YouTube that's mm. an artist book. You know what I mean. So do you have to have the intention to make an artist book, or can something later be declared an artist book? I think something later can be declared an artist book at any time. 
May I ask you something controversial? Sure. Do you think that scrapbooks are artist books? Yes, I do. (laughs) I do. I agree with that. Um, Because, you know, the thing that really frustrates me um, is this, like, fine line between craft and fine art. And I feel like as long as I made it with my hands, to me, that is art. That's where I'm at today in my, like, art career. Like, if I made it and it's art to me, you know. That's so interesting. And it totally makes me think of, like, mom's question, too, where she said, like, does – do you have to have the intention for it to be an artist book for it to be an artist book or can it become one later? Which I think a lot of times people talk about the difference between art and craft being intention with, I think, Mm -hmm. some of the idea that, like, fine art with a capital F and an A – you know, has like a like a thesis behind it, essentially like major thought. Where craft, uh, the belief is sometimes that it doesn't. But I always think that's so interesting because, you know, in a museum you can go and you can see like incredible baskets that have been woven or you know stone carvings and stuff like that, which which I think fit into some craft standards. Right. But those people definitely had intention, you know, in what they were making and creating. And then sometimes you look at some contemporary art, which which can seem like it is somewhat intentionless. And yet it's definitely fine art with a capital F and an A. So it gets I don't know about you, but it gets kind of uh, I think it's all mixed up. And I think people like to create categories for reasons I don't totally understand. Well, I was going to say, (laughs) what is the benefit of having those categories except to rule certain things out? Yes. Right. I mean, there doesn't yeah. seem to be any benefit to it intellectually, and it's an ever-changing line. Sometimes something that's a hundred years old is called an art, whereas if you were making it today, somebody might say, "Oh, that's craft." Well, I have to tell you, I was listening to a podcast uh, interview with Bisa Butler, who is a—I don't know what you would call her. She makes quilts, but they're not quilts. She's fiber art. I guess, and she was talking about her undergraduate education where uh, they had, like, not been allowed to do textile art, and it was very, like, no, that's not, like, that's too craft, that's not fine art, and then when her, in her graduate education, they were like, no, everyone must take, uh, you know, this, uh, all these textile arts because, you know, we're taking that back, we're reclaiming what was this women's work as an art form. So, again, it's like, I think things come and there was some time between her graduate and undergraduate experience. So I think like mm-hmm. things come in and out of fashion, maybe. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. Um, but I feel like, well, I, I got my art degree like after, like in my, the end of my thirties, like I had, I had actually got my undergraduate and um, another, like I, I received an MBA and that was the things I got because, you know, you're supposed to do these these particular you know um degrees because you know they get you a job and after I'd gotten the job and did the job I found out I didn't really like that job (laughs) (laughs) so like in you know in a boring state like I was so bored I decided to take art classes and took more and took more and I was like well since I already have an undergraduate degree, let me go ahead and take a, let me see how, what, what I would take to get an associate. So I got that. Then I went and looked online and said, oh, the Corcoran has this master's of art program. I'm going to take that. And I'm just got moving on and moving on. Even though I was still doing this job, I, you know, was passionate about doing art. And 
to be honest, I brought all the invitations I made for weddings, like all the crafty stuff I did. I brought that to my my interview to the Corcoran. <laughs> I, I I did have the I had the drawings. I had all the other stuff that I had from the classes, but I felt like it wasn't strong enough. But I brought the crafty stuff to my portfolio. Review, and they obviously so. liked it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so will you talk to us a little bit about um, grad school? I mean, how was that? I've heard some, I've heard mixed tales from people about, you know, getting your master's in art can be like sort of soul sucking or like really hard to deal with critiques and that kind of stuff. How did, how did you find it? So I, I didn't really hit like my mojo until like the fourth semester and I was really because I worked full time I was taking I was taking two classes um, a semester so I was taking like the bare minimum I know there was other students that were taking four and five but I was like I can't even get past two but um, like the historical like classes I did not do well because there's lots of paper like you have to write papers I mean, not, not like a three-page paper. I'm talking about 15, 20, 25 pages of, like, this is an artist book, and, you know, what does it mean to you kind of paper. And I, I just struggled in those classes. Um, I did struggle in critique because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea if this is good or not. And then it wasn't until I took this, the, the, the semester where I took bookbinding one and advanced printmaking it was like, oh. and I mean, I printed and made books the entire, like there was no writing papers the entire time I was in the studio. And when I, when I brought all my stuff to critique, it was like, they finally saw me as an artist. Cause at first they were like, they, I remember someone said, you know, your taste is questionable. That was said to me during critique. And then this time it was like, oh my gosh, this stuff is amazing. Keep doing it. Keep pushing. And I feel like now, like in the work that I do now in my practice, it's basically those two classes, bookbinding and advanced printmaking. That's what I continue to do every day, really. Can, can you define what it was about uh, printmaking and bookbinding that just like, that was it? That was like, that got you, that sucked you in, that you just fell in love with? Um, I think it was just to do the act of doing something with your hands. I mean, I worked for a technology company and everything was cell phone this and laptop that. And then to, to have the, the ability to make something so, so a book by hand was like very interesting to me, very cathartic, um, very therapeutic for me. And so um, I would find myself in the studio at school just completely silent just doing the thing and just feeling complete bliss and then i would then i would go off to, to work the next day feeling energized because of the you know the experiences that we're having by by creating and i also felt like it was like being a scientist like i would try certain things certain like i remember the first time i was able to transfer a, a photo from like you know when you print on a regular paper with a laser jet um, printer mm. and then transfer that multiple times to <laughs> to a piece of paper, like in different colors. It was like amazing to me, like to be able to do that. Like, it's like going back to your roots, like letterpress and 
and carving things by hand. I just really enjoyed that. I mean, I I love bookmaking and printmaking too. And I'm actually, I'm wondering what they have in common because I do think that a number of people who are printmakers are also bookmakers. I, mm. And I just wonder, like, is there something about the way that your brain works with both of those things that kind of where they make sense together or is it a natural thing that like if you make prints you like to make books of the prints I don't know or if you make books you like to fill them with print I don't know I mean I just I can't figure it out do you do you see similarities between them well I like I mean like just like you said I like to make print like I'll print a bunch of different prints and, and then I store them and then I'll go back and make them into one gigantic book and then add you know, like words and embellishments to it. But I, I tend to like to do that. I do frame some of my prints. It depends on, you know, how I'm feeling. Again, it's like, it is a feeling. Like, so when I get the prints out, sometimes I'm like, oh, this is going to go on the wall or this is going to go in a book. And I, I, I do make a delineation looking at what, you know, what the output is. So what's that delineation for you? Like what is sort of book prints and what is wall prints? Like when you, it's how it's like you perceive the the actual print. If it to me, I even like will just clip it onto the wall and look at it for a bit to see. Wait, will this be good on a wall? Or I even just throw it in a frame to see if it looks good. If not, then I just throw it in a book and then add more stuff to it, or even print more on top of it. It's just, I mean, I don't have like uh, <laughs> I guess a rule. Like I'm really open to whatever, whatever it tells me when I put it on the wall. I, I mean, so there are two things, which is one, I think like being open as an artist is probably one of the most important things that you can do and sort of be ever evolving. I think sometimes people get stuck into this kind of matrix of right and wrong and this is what I do and this is what I don't do. And mm -hmm. although some of those rules, you set them up sort of to help you in the beginning, I think they become enormously limiting if you live by them, you know. Um, mm -hmm. But then the other thing that I wanted to say is I think it's so uh, one of the things that I think is really unique and interesting about your prints and we'll certainly show some of them in the um, show notes along with this podcast is the the very layered, intensely patterned look that you do, which I, I, I find very unique. There aren't a ton of printmakers that I see really printing on top, on top, on top the way that you do. <laughs> You know, it's funny that you say this because I remember um, at a critique um, and I, I at the time on this project that I was doing, I had two layers printed. And so, you know, the, the teacher says, hey, you know, what are you planning to do next? I said, well, I'm going to add like three more layers. And they were like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Why would you want to do that? And I was like, well, I want to see what happens if I add another layer. You know, I want to do it multiple colors. I want to do white. I want to do purple. I want to just mix it up and see what happens. And and they were like, you shouldn't do this. And I'm like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And so I did. And then when I brought the final project to class, they were like, oh, this is amazing. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know it is. That's why I did what I, I did. why people are so quick to always say, oh, you can't do that, as if there are all these rules. I, again, sometimes I think that uh, 
people would become would be more creative if they would stop thinking that there are only certain ways you can use certain supplies or there's only certain number of things that are allowed to do on a piece of paper i just or that you might have to do it on paper instead of on whatever interesting is sitting around why do people try to make things so restricted as if it's a the holy grail well, I think there is a great desire, which we've discussed many times, to like very clearly delineate, do you know what I mean, uh, the sort of the right and the wrong so that you know what's happening. I mean, art is subjective and it's hard to judge. And so it's the old thing where it's like you can't make up your mind about it, but if it's by a famous artist or if it's by or if someone gives something like rave reviews, then you're more likely to like it, even though it could be identical to something else. I mean, I think we've talked about this before, but there was a famous thing that Banksy did where he set up a stall at a craft fair and since no one knows what he looks like and he you know put out the art that he makes normally to see if anybody would buy it and he only sold two pieces because no one knew that it was Banksy and I think like that is so much of what uh uh is going on is that people want to say like you know this has value and that doesn't because of and they're trying to base it on something you know what I mean as opposed to people are afraid of their own opinion and people are afraid to be different and people are afraid to like things do you know what i mean that other people don't which is kind of hilarious but it's true mm -hmm. did you find in grad school sarah that there were um uh, that people's opinions were very varied or did you find that they tended to homogenize I think I think it was varied because everyone had their opinion, and I think that was the whole point to me. Now that I'm looking at it, you know, from the outside, I've been, you know, I graduated in 2016. I think it was to to make an make an impression on you as an artist. So like everyone's going to have an opinion about everything, and so you have to have the passion um, about your work and not be upset about what anyone says about it. You know what I mean? Because people are going to say whatever they want to say. But I think, you know, that was the lesson. Hey, everyone's going to have an opinion and you have your opinion and you make your thing. And if they like it, great. If they don't, it's okay. Keep because moving. It's, it's They're not opinion. your people. Yeah, keep right <laughs> exactly. they are not your exactly. people well and i think exactly. we certainly see a lot of that right now i've seen a ton of people for instance that are artists that i follow on instagram who maybe have been getting political who have basically pushed back and said you know if you don't like this unfollow me like back off i just like that's your opinion this is my opinion and you know we don't need to right we you don't need to be in my circle and that's fine right um, so I want to talk a little bit. You mentioned your daily practice. Will you tell us about that daily practice? Well, I try to either carve or print or bind something every day. So I do something every day. And it's whenever I can get it done. So sometimes I wake up early in the morning. I'll come out and do something. Sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I make stuff. Um, I have four girls, so it's whenever I have a free moment <laughs> to do things. And now that we've been on, under quarantine, because I'm still, we still, we're still home, regardless of what everybody else is doing in the world. But um, how old are your girls? You know, so I have an 18 year old, 11, 10, and a four year old. Wow, that wow. is a huge range. You are busy. Oh yes, 
Yes, yes, yes. The four-year-old, uh, you know, of course, absorbs most of the <laughs> the bulk of the attention. But uh, yeah. <laughs> so, are you doing a lot of of a homeschooling or distance learning right now? Yeah, that's uh, yeah, yeah. That's what we've been doing. So the kids are actually one of them. Like, she's in middle school, so she's on her call right now. But the other is off, and she just got out of her class. So, but yeah, they're all online until further further notice. So, and yeah. do they like to make art with you? Yes, I already have a book binder in the family. Um, oh, yeah, that's the the middle schooler. She. She already makes books and makes cards. Um, so if, like, if, if anyone has like a birthday or Christmas or whatever, she actually hand makes their card, cuts it out herself. Do you um, let them use your good supplies? <laughs> <laughs> They're all, yeah. I actually got out soft cut and cut some pieces out and had them, you know, draw a little figure and carve out their own stamps. Um, the four-year-old doesn't get it. So I just basically just pull out my trash stamps and just give it to her and just give her some little like the little dewdrop like memento thing mm. and just let her print cool and don't even think of yeah i mean because you know you get the, the little re-inkers so it's not a big deal but um but That's yeah awesome. <laughs> so uh i'm assuming since you you have a house full of these girls and you're you know but you are working every day and like do you have a separate studio space and if so will you tell us a little bit about it and even if not will you tell us about where you create so there is a small like closet studio downstairs in the basement, um, but I haven't been in it since we've been under quarantine. So um, my husband bought like <laughs> he bought a, another like dining room table for the kids, but it was too big for the space. So now that is my desk. It's actually facing outside the window, and I have like um, three plant stands. So I've actually started, you know, like as a hobby. I've been collecting <laughs> plants. Mm, <laughs> so there's a, yeah. uh, my garden of plants over here to my right. And then I have my setup when I'm filming um, over my, my desk. And then I have like those rolling um, craft cart thingies. So, you know what I'm talking about? The ones that you get yeah. from like, Michael's. Yeah, yeah. And it's full of stuff. And yeah. So I'm making it work up here in the living room until you know, the kids get back into regular school and then I can go back downstairs and go into my mama cave. Do you think it's changed your creating to be in the midst of the family as opposed to in a separate space? Yeah, because I find myself, you know, like a kid saying, hey, look what I made. <laughs> <laughs> and just turning around like, oh, see this? Oh, you like it? Oh my God. I'm getting like input from my kids and they're like, it looks amazing. Yeah, Ma, I saw it already. You know, like, stop doing that. <laughs> That's awesome, though. It's nice for them to know that you're proud of what you do. It's modeling good behavior yeah. for them, too. Yeah, yeah. You could have yeah. family show and tell every day, and so everybody shows something they made. Right. <laughs> so you they mentioned me you mentioned filming, and I know you have a YouTube channel. Will you tell us a little bit about what people can find there? So when I originally started the YouTube page, it was mostly about like um, thrifting. So taking thrifting, thrifted items and then like changing them up. So like sewing, lots of sewing. And then, um, cause I wasn't, 
I guess I wasn't confident in doing stamping or, or carving or, or bookbinding at the time. But um, as time went on, I think probably in the middle of it, because I'm at 62 videos now, um, I started just really just going after printing. So I printed on jackets and I printed on skirts and different um, fabrics. And then I started doing like different, like the, the pamphlet stitch and, you know, the one page, you know, eight, I guess the eight fold um, zine. I, I was doing different, you know, different things. So now I'm just, now the ones that I do now is basically whatever project that I'm doing for the week, that's what's going to end up on the video. And I started at the beginning talking majority of the time. Now it's just silence and meditative music and just me printing or making something. So I really love doing it. Um, even though I only have like 334 followers, but you know what? I do it for them and they love it and they always comment. And I've gotten, I've seen like, um, people, you know, um, tag me on Instagram and I get to see their wonderful work. So if I can just, you know, inspire at least one person to make things, I, you know, I think I did, I did my job. I, I can go to sleep happy. I think that inspiring people is like one of the great honors that they would be willing to spend time with you. Like, I mean, cause like the one thing that everybody has too little of is time, right? Even yeah. in a pandemic, especially in a pandemic might want to say, you know, this goes back to my theory about the pandemic is divided between people who have too much time and not enough time. Like when I read about people binging on TV, I'm like, what do you not have a job or a child or like, like how can do you have all this time? Oh, yeah. I feel like I binge less. Well, I would binge like, you know, it's not really technically binge because it's on TV, but you're not really paying attention to it. Mm. Kind of. Binge. And then now when I'm watching TV, I'm actually looking and, you know, like when my husband comes home and it's just us, we watch. I have no nothing, no, no laptop, no computer, no, no um, phone in front of me. I'm just watching, which is different because sometimes we're like, did you watch so and so and so? I'm like, I don't remember that. I wasn't paying attention because I was on my computer doing something else. So. It is an interesting question of whether like the pandemic has life to a certain extent has made us all be a little more present. Yeah, I would, I would totally agree with that because I felt like also I was, we were overspending, like we were buying things that we didn't need. Yes. Put yeah. In that uh, category. Yeah, I, I'm like, I don't even need this stuff. Or like now when I go shopping, like I went shopping recently and it was like sticker shock to see a frame for $40. I was like, no, I'm not paying that. I'm going to the thrift store and pay $3. Like, like I'm really like, really, you know, looking at like my spending. And I feel like it's also like um, a green thing for me. It's like, I don't want to be getting things that I don't need and then end up throwing it away. Mm. I want to be really thoughtful about, you know, what I am putting in the environment. So, yeah. You know, people think of thrift stores as just a place to get something cheap, but actually the idea of viewing it as a green situation where you're re recycling things is really useful, I think. Mm -hmm. Julius found some fabulous things at this place near us. I mean, unbelievable things. And you just... You don't go with the idea of what you're 
going to get, but you go with an open mind to see what's there. Yeah, I think I think that's the fun of the thrift store is that like you just go and something strikes you and it it actually reminds me. So I love to, you know, make these junk journals out of all my art projects that didn't work out. And there are a lot. Um, And so I bind them into these journals. And then the thing I like so much about the junk journal process is that I never have a blank page. Right. I'm always looking at something that's giving me some kind of like starting point. It's like having a conversation and the page is already talking to me the second I open it because there's something there to react to. And I feel like a thrift store to me is almost like that in so many ways, which is like you go in sort of with an open mind and it's like you're flipping through to sort of see what piques your interest. And then it's like, oh, this gives me an idea for a project or, oh, this would be a perfect way to change up my, you know, living room or, oh, this is like a fun idea for whatever else. I don't know. There's something about it that just has possibilities. Do you feel like you have a specific section that you gravitate towards? Like, because when I go into it, I, I make a beeline straight. <laughs> I go straight for the dresses first. Then I go around and I go to the books. I look at the books. Then I go to the artwork and I look at that. And then I go to the, the um, houseware. So like uh, mm. like the potting. Yeah. And that's my four areas and I'm, and I'm good. <laughs> that's so interesting. I am definitely uh, housewares first. Like, I am always, the first thing I'm looking at is, like, weird candelabras, dishes, vases, you know, like, that's the the sort of tchotchke area that interests me. I would say the second thing that I'm always interested in is, like, huge furniture, which is ridiculous because I don't have any room in my house, but... I love painting and transforming furniture and the thrift store has been great. I've been able to find like a dresser, a table, like all sorts of stuff for like under $5. So we're talking like really cheap. You can get good deals on the big stuff because nobody wants to transport it. Exactly. Right. Right. So I'm so clearly my next career, what I'm going to have to do is like, paint furniture or get a warehouse or something because that I, I I really enjoy it but you just can only bring so much crap into your house you know what I mean or unless you're like Joanna Gaines she has like that big like gigantic warehouse of stuff no and I think about that sometimes like how fun would it be that when you go to like an antique fair or like a thrift store you just anything you have enough space you can be like oh i'll find a project for that oh i'll find a place for that like Not just you know space. you have people to pick it up yes. and take it for you <laughs> that's it i'm looking that's at a giant it. armoire and i say okay guys that and then you point and then you move on and somebody else picks it up for you it's so nice to have people wouldn't it be nice Isn't i'd like that? to just have people <laughs> yeah me too me too <laughs> someday in my next life i'll have people um so let's talk a little bit about you're teaching uh a lesson for the big carve december class that's coming up uh can you tell us anything a sneak peek about uh your lesson or what you were thinking about in terms of developing it or any little hints that you can give us so in the beginning of my video, I call out that I don't consider myself a great drawer. I've never really considered myself a great drawer. In fact, I took drawing one and drawing two and struggled through those classes. Um, I, I mean, I have all my notebooks, but I, I still feel like I look at them and I'm like, I don't, I don't like what I see. <laughs> so I felt like um, as somebody who's getting into Carve December, they probably you know, are 
may, may be intimidated by what we're doing in carbonism because I used to be like that too. I wouldn't, you know, dissipate. But I, I, I wanted to come up with something where you could take simple shapes and make stamps and make intricate stamps. And it's very simple. You just cut out. I won't. You know what? I'm not going to even tell you what it is. <laughs> I want you to watch the video. But what I'm trying to say is, I want, I wanted some takes. Wanted you to have the ability to take something simple and make something intricate. And no one will know but you. But the print looks amazing. <laughs> that is always a good trick. Right. <laughs> Do you design on paper or on the computer or a mixture? A mixture. So I've designed on Photoshop. I've used, what's that, Procreate on my iPad. and Or just plain, just like, one of the things I think I learned from Julie, one of the videos she, she was talking about trash stamps, like that is my favorite thing to do is take like the, the remnant and just making something out of it and then reusing it. So I like majority of my stamps are trash stamps, to be honest. Um, but I just love like the simple shapes that they create. And then when you layer them, it's like even to me more luxurious. I just love it. It just like, I want to eat it up when I'm, when I'm doing it myself. With, with my hands so um, I just I just like playing I think that's really what it is I just like playing to me it's like it's like playing you know with toys to me where so. do you get your inspiration from is there like a certain do you have a ritual do you have a place that you do do you have you know certain things that you go to I think it depends. Like one of my favorite artists is Amos Paul Kennedy Jr. I think I've said his his name in every interview I've done recently, but he is like my favorite because he he, he letter he uses a letterpress, so he layers. If you go back, go and look at his website, you'll see that it, like it's like he'll just take it and layer over and over again with just letterpress, and it's beautiful work. Um, I remember they did a show at Pyramid Atlantic. And here in Maryland, and all this stuff was on the wall, and it was just like so magnificent. And, and like I, I just, I, I stood there like, like in tears. I remember when I found out that he was going to be there, I stalked him. Like I stayed there and watched. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I will get his water. I will take care of him. Let, let me, let me. Like I want to know everything that he does. And he was like so free. And, you know, he just came in and just said, we're just going to do this. And he had no lesson plan, which was fine, because we still end up making, like, beautiful prints. But he was like, we're just going to go with how we feel. And the, the biggest takeaway I got from him being, you know, in the midst of him was he said, put ink on paper every day. Mm. And that's why I try to do something every day because uh, it's very important. It keeps you energized. It keeps you um, growing. I think um, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be doing these layers if I hadn't, you know, been practicing every day. So I love his work. And it's just I find it inspiring. He obviously uses a lot of text and stuff. It's just it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, do you have other artists that you love? Uh, when it comes to um, book binding, Haiti Kyle is my favorite. Um, my favorite structure that she created is called the flag book. I, like, I mean, I, I can't even explain how many 
flagbooks I've made, but I just love the sculptural effect of it, especially when you print, take your print and you cut it up and you put make the flags in the front and then you can print on the back and then on the side. So like it's like a a multi-dimensional artwork. Um, I love putting who, it on. For people who don't know what a flag book is, will you just tr- describe a little bit what it kind of looks like? So basically, if you think about an accordion fold, it's it's thinner folds, and then you lay flags on the top going one direction, and then on the sec- second row going the opposite direction, and then on the third row going the opposite direction. So I've seen people do three layers of three or four or even more. Um, I've seen people do large ones. I actually, the biggest one I have is what? Eight by 11. Um, it's a, a Martin Luther King book. When you open it up, it's like, it's, it ends up being wide. You have to go to my website to see. This is one thing that's like, it's hard to explain what a flag book is, but you have to see it to And what to is your website it. URL? I am sarahmatthews.com. Easy to remember. <laughs> Matthews yeah. with two T's. Yes, Matthew with Matthews with two T's dot com, and then at the top where it says "I am a book artist," click on that, and it'll show you all my the books that I've made. Actually, the first thing that comes up on that page is a flag book. So, so Sarah, do you do a lot of teaching? Yes, I do. I do. And in the pre-pandemic times, I assume you taught in person. Do you have online classes that people can take too? Yes, absolutely. I teach at Pyramid Atlantic online. Uh, and then I'm, I have a class coming up at the Minnesota Book Arts um, Center, which is interesting that that would never have happened <laughs> pre-pandemic, you know, because like they're allowing me to teach online, but I don't live in Minnesota. That's like very interesting to me. And then the classes that I've been teaching at Pyramid, like the last class I taught, there was somebody from Oregon, someone from California, and then somebody from Boston, all in the same class. So that would never have happened before, you know, when I was teaching live classes. So that's what I appreciate. And one thing I, you know, I, 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 I've told Pyramid and all the other places that I've teach, taught before is that I'm going to continue to teach online after this is all over because I feel like I can reach more people and talk to more people and connect with more people. I mean, I, I actually taught a class to students that were in Hawaii two weeks ago. Like that would never have happened before. I think it's, I think it's, I agree with you. I think it's so cool that you can reach so many more people and basically from the comfort of your home and it eliminate, I mean, A, it eliminates so many costs, both like actual monetary costs and then also just like emotional, physical, you know, other kind of costs from traveling and like all of that sort of stuff. And for the most part, there are some things I miss about in-person teaching, but I have to say it is unbelievable to me and I have both taken classes and taught classes in the kind of Zoom format, you really can get, I would say like 95% of what you get in person through, if it's well taught, through Mm -hmm. these Zoom classes, which is amazing. Yeah. The only thing is, I feel like from a teacher's standpoint, I can't see what they're doing. That's Mm. what I, I struggle with. So I have to say, oh, can you lift it up so I can see? And then, or I'll like set up that right now, like, like the classes that I have scheduled, I'm making a point that at the end, 
that I set set time aside for them to do show and tell. Yes. That's the only way I'm going to be able to see what they're doing. <laughs> yes, 100%. All my classes include show and tell because when you can't have that incidental walk around where you happen to see something or happen to see the way somebody's holding a brush, like it becomes really important, A, for people to be verbal and to know that they need to ask a question when they're having trouble or struggling or be able to say, you know what I mean, what's happening so that you can like adjust it or help them with it. Um, and then B, like, it's really important that there is that time that you have that communal sharing because part of the pleasure of a class is seeing how many varieties on, on an idea there can be. I mean, now technically not a class, my quilt guild recently did a challenge where everybody had to just create a quilt using the same piece of fabric and you could mm -hmm. add whatever else you wanted to it, but it was really interesting to me to see the incredible array of difference right the variety in you know this assignment from all of these these women and so actually there was one man from all of these people um <laughs> and so it was it was just really great and i think like i love that about class where you can give an assignment and you know to 20 people and get 20 completely different things back yeah exactly everybody's brain is so interesting the way that it works um so very quickly before we have to wrap up um, how long have you participated in Carve December? Um, it's been three years. And how did you first find it? Um, I found it from your YouTube page. I think you were talking about it. Like, join us, join me for Carve December, blah, blah, blah. And I joined. <laughs> Which is awesome. But how, I'm curious about how your work has evolved through Carve December. Like, have you seen it change over those three years? Yeah, so I actually, okay, so you know how, I mean, you probably do this, but I have like a bunch of empty journals, mm. like a collection of them. And so like the first time I did Carve December, I didn't keep track of what I carved. Like I just printed whatever. But the second time I was smart, especially I've been through ink Inktober. Mm -hmm. So I just pulled out a blank journal and each day I printed a page and I, mark the date so um over the last i guess i guess two carb decembers and three inktobers that i haven't started the one that was supposed to start yesterday uh, oh. <laughs> i haven't done anything for that but um but i keep track so i look at i go back and look at my old prints so i can see because the first set that i did i didn't layer you can look i don't layer at all and then as you can see i start as i go through like I am putting the stamps closer together, but they're not on top of each other. And then as I progress, I keep layering and adding more layers. And then, yeah. So that I, is I, super cool. <laughs> Definitely can see my progression. Like, I don't care anymore. I'll just layer on anything. Well, that's so. such a great idea for, you know, a lot of times I think we don't see progress in ourselves, in our whatever it is that we're working towards because it's so infinitesimal. And yet... It's there, but it's like if you don't have the receipts, so to speak, you don't see it. Yeah. So by keeping a record, like something as simple as a journal, which not to mention, you know, it's a great way to divest yourself of a blank journal <laughs> into something that actually has something in it. I mean, one of the curses of being a bookmaker, as I'm sure you know, is you have a lot of books. Yes. Yes. Do you yes. tend to I mean, make I... blank books or do you tend to make books that already have art in them? I make 
I make art. I make books with art in them, basically. Sometimes they have words. Sometimes they don't. Um, and then sometimes what my favorite thing is to do is make altered books. So to take an existing book and cut it up and make something new. That is my favorite thing to do besides flag books. I think that there's something, again, it gets back to our thrift store conversation. Like, how fun right. is it to take something and make it into make it into something new? Yeah, I find myself, like, going, I know I probably look crazy, but, like, I'll go to the thrift store, and I'll just open up the book and flip really fast. And then, like, oh, I don't like that one. I don't like the paper. Next one. Just flip. Like, they probably was like, what is she doing? But I ha- I'm feeling the paper. I'm looking to see what's on it. If I can print on top of it, because you know how like the glossy paper is just, mm. just works so well. You know what I mean? It's gotta have like, yeah. some be able to absorb the ink. So yeah. Or the pages are That's, too fragile. If it's really old right. and then it's falling apart, and like I always right. like to look for a stitch binding as opposed to a glue binding because it really helps right. you like deal with the weight of the pages and like take some out. Mm-hmm. I'll take the jacket off to see what the what the what the binding looks like, you know, I'll, and throw the jacket away. Well, I'll use the jacket for something else, but you know what I mean? Like, I don't, yeah. I take it off and look at it, you know, in the store. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, it looks like it is time for us to wrap up. This has gone by so quickly. Um, if people want to follow you and find you online, Sarah, where can they do that? So they can follow me on Instagram at I am Sarah Matthews. Um, and also I have, my website is I am Sarah Matthews.com. Again, you can click on there. It says I'm a book artist to take you to my other website, which is focused specifically on book finding. And that's um, Mary after my grandmother. And that's pretty much. Oh, and my YouTube page, my YouTube page is Sarah B me. And um, it's all bookbinding and printmaking. Do you teach how to make a flag book on your YouTube? Yes, I do. Perfect. Uh, let me just make a note for myself to link to that. I'll go looking on your YouTube page and find the flag book tutorial. Uh, and mom, did you have any last thoughts you wanted to add in? No, I'm about to rush off to the nearby thrift store. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. Don't get lost. Don't get lost on the way. So as always, you can find me at juliebalzer.com or on Instagram as Balzer Designs. We'd love to hear from you. So do send us an email or leave us a comment. And if you'd like to help the show, you can always just tell a friend about it or leave a review on Apple Podcasts because all that kind of stuff really helps um, new people find the show. So thanks so much for listening and subscribing. We'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting podcast.